Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This week, scholarly publishers are celebrating Peer Review Week, and we discover why Institute of Physics Publishing is now offering double anonymous peer review on its journals. Also in this episode, we delve into the murky world of atomic weapons with the author of a new book called Restricted Data, The History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to learn about the latest breakthroughs in electrochemistry? The 240th ECS meeting brings together the most active researchers in academia, government, and industry professionals and students to engage, discuss, and innovate in the areas of electrochemistry and solid-state science and technology. Michael Hecht from the MIT Haystack Observatory delivers the ECS lecture, Electrolysis on Mars, MOXIE and the Perseverance Mission, along with award presentations on fuel cells for affordable zero-emissions vehicles, pitting corrosion, and future directions for batteries as guidance for future innovation. The all-virtual event runs from October 10th to October 14th. Attendee registration is free. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash 240 to learn more. Progress in physics research relies heavily on the public sharing of knowledge. So how is progress made in fields such as nuclear weapons development, where secrecy is a priority? Physics World's Margaret Harris finds out when she meets a historian and author who studies nuclear secrecy in the U.S. Many of you listening will already know something about the history of the Manhattan Project, that is, the massive multi-billion dollar effort to develop the first atomic weapons during the Second World War. And if you do know something about it, you'll probably know that this work was done in secret, and that the official secrecy surrounding atomic weapons, and later nuclear weapons, is still in place today. Which is why it's kind of unusual that we have someone here on the podcast to talk about it. I'm joined by Alex Wellerstein, who's a history of science and technology and the author of of a book called Restricted Data, The History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm really pleased to be here. So maybe you could just begin by briefly describing what your book is about. So my book is a history of nuclear secrecy in the United States from the sort of pre-Manhattan Project period to some degree through the present day. And what I mean by that as a history of secrecy, it's a history of attempts, both official and unofficial, formal and informal, to control the spread of nuclear technology by controlling the spread of information or knowledge. So it's attempts to use all manner of 
methods, often government laws and regulations, but but also fences and stamps and everything that you can imagine that you associate with secrecy, um, to keep um, especially technical information from moving from circles that you want the information to be in, your weapons scientists at your laboratories, to pretty much anywhere else. As a result, it's kind of a ridiculously large story, and <laughs> there's a lot going on there because it's it's it doesn't stay in one little location. It doesn't stay in the labs. It's it's a story that plays out in newspapers and magazines and conferences and, and patent offices and all sorts of places uh, across the United States. Now, the title of your book, as I mentioned, is Restricted Data, and those words have a specific meaning in the U.S. nuclear security complex. Maybe you could tell us what that is. So restricted data is a legal concept that was created by the Atomic Energy Act of 1946. And in the book, it describes sort of where this comes from, but it's sort of added in an 11th hour uh, addition to the law by a very disturbed congressman. And it is the special legal category for nuclear secrets in the United States. In the United States, there are essentially two categories of secrecy. Um, there's what's called national defense information. That's what you think of as secret, top secret, confidential, things like that. That covers State Department, CIA, FBI, chemical weapons, the Army, whatever you can think of that secrecy that is non-nuclear, that's in national defense information. And then there's this category that is only for nuclear technology that's restricted data. And that's a very interesting way to sort of carve up secrecy. It's a different law. It's a different definition of how secrecy works. Um, but it reflects that at the birth of the atomic age, they really took this uh, to mean something totally different than what had come before, that the secrecy around nuclear weapons was to be something unprecedented and special. And so I thought that was a good title for a book since it both you can read it on the, you know, you don't have to know what it means to make sense of it. But if you know what it means, you think, oh, okay, this is about nuclear secrecy in particular. And uh, among its unusual characteristics uh, compared to other forms of secrecy, the definition of restricted data is famously um, along really different lines than traditional forms of secrecy. So it's not some bureaucrat in an office has decided that this information will harm the United States and that's its secret. That's more or less how other secrecy is supposed to work, right? Restricted data is all information that pertains to nuclear weapons or nuclear reactors or enrichment of materials or anything that would be sort of uh, the associated with the release of nuclear energy is by definition in this category, unless the United States government has taken it out of the category. And that's a very weird way to set up a law. It, and again, it also is a, is a symbol of them thinking of this in a very different way in the 1940s than they did any other kind of secrecy. Why did, why did they think about it in such a different way? I mean, I suppose it, it must have caused lots of problems because, you know, unlike the, some of the things you're talking about, the locations of armies or their capabilities... With nuclear weapons, the secrets involved are fundamentally about science. You know, if people discover them once, they can presumably discover them again. The origins of it are, it, it, it's a long story, but to, to sort of summarize it, the congressmen who were drafting this law got very scared right towards the end of their drafting period because it was one of the first sort of atomic spy scandals, not even a really major one, uh, but it was enough of one. And they started to really feel that they needed a lot of secrecy around nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. 
they sort of clung to the idea of the secret as what was going to preserve the American monopoly on uh, this technology. Ironically, I mean, if you hear about spies getting your information, you probably, in in, in a logical sense, wouldn't think that secrecy was going to work if you already had spies. But that isn't how any of them ever thought. They always thought, okay, we need more secrecy now. And um, what they did was, the reason it has this very odd construction is they believed that if this new organization that this law was creating, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now the Department of Energy in the United States, it's a federal organization for managing these things, they didn't want to give them the power to expand their secrets all over the place. They were worried that they would just expand, expand, and everything would become secret. And so their compromise was to define everything as secret from the beginning and then only give them the power to roll back the secrecy. Now, that's a very weird compromise. And I think that it's not in any way an act of legislative genius. I think it's a sign that they were really rushing on this and really had not thought through all of the complicated implications of this. And there would be complicated implications of this construction that continue to this day. And I found no evidence that they were at all anticipating them in 1946. But that's the sort of weird construction and that this law is still on the books and this definition is still on the books. And today it's been sort of adapted into the secrecy system. And what it really means in practice is that nuclear weapons information requires another security clearance on top of the normal security clearances you have. Um, but it's got this very odd historical origins. And, and just to get to the bigger point, this is kind of what the book is about, is showing the, the ways in which all of these, the, the system we have now and all the system that evolved, it, it, it isn't sort of a natural, obvious sort of process. It's always got weird historical origins. There were choices made at specific points in history and uh, the job of the book is to try and point to where those choices were made and why they were made. Because presumably, you know, I, I know that, you know, a lot of, of the scientists, the physicists who worked on the Manhattan Project really didn't like the secrecy regime they were under. Uh, and they really objected to it. And they thought, presumably they thought, a lot of them, that it would be removed after the war. I mean, the bomb was dropped. You know, it killed lots and lots of people. That's not secret anymore once that's happened. It, it's not even just the scientists. I mean, it was even the military, even the politicians. Most of those people during World War II believed that the secrecy was going to be temporary, right? And they believed it was both uh, silly and counterproductive to try and maintain secrecy uh, for very long, especially once once you've set off a nuclear weapon. It's obvious to everyone in the world that nuclear weapons are feasible. And once you know they're feasible, it's not that hard to work backwards and figure out what had been done and how they were done. Um, and the scientists were, in particular, very afraid, and they conveyed this fear very well to the politicians and administrators and people like that, that if you, okay, maybe during a, a three-year period during World War II, when you have a fear of the Nazis and you know all of this together, maybe you can take all the scientists and keep them very quiet for a while and take knowledge that was essentially developed before World War II and exploit it as a weapon. That's their sort of model of the Manhattan Project, right? But you wouldn't be able to generate much new knowledge under these conditions. They believe that if you tried to put a lot of secrecy on there, you would essentially be strangling um, this new form of science. And in the process, 
you would be uh, creating, aside from doing damage to science, you'd be doing damage to national security because you wouldn't be able to keep up as a country with other nations that were being more liberal in their work. So these were some of the arguments they were making even during World War II about what was going to happen after the war. And uh, yeah, they were many of them were completely surprised that the secrecy ended up being essentially permanent. You know, of course, the secrecy d- didn't end up being totally permanent because there was a fair amount of information released about the bomb immediately after the war. Um, but one thing you picked up on your book is that a lot of that information that came out was about physics. It was about the sort of pre-war physics that had been done. And I think you say it's that this really influenced the public's perception of what the Manhattan Project was about to the exclusion of the chemists, the engineers, the material scientists who worked on it. Why was there such a focus on releasing information about physics and not this other stuff? So there was a big push to release a lot of information right after the bombs were dropped. Um, they called this the publicity campaign. And it was, uh, and they did a lot of work in trying to figure out what to release and what not to release. And this is the first instance in which they did this. And this is a, it is a different form of secrecy. It's, it's not the sort of absolute secrecy of the war it's more of a model that is more like the one we have today, where some things are let out and some things are kept back. And it was the first time they sort of sat down and tried to figure out what should we release and what should we hold back. And the criteria they had for what to release was, had it been published before the war? Because if there's no point in trying to keep that secret, it's already out there. Um, was it something that a group of scientists could sort of figure out without very, you know, very modest materials or laboratory uh, experience? in a matter of a few weeks or something like that. Could a team of five scientists figure this out with a chalkboard and a, some beakers? Then why keep it secret, right? Um, or anything that wasn't really about the production of the atomic bomb, uh, and, and, and specifically the production of the bomb. They think of the bomb in very material terms. It's about how do you make this weapon? Not necessarily what's going on inside this weapon. That can be related to how you make it. It can tell you, for example, how much uranium you need for the weapon or something like that. But it's it's ultimately the material bomb is the concern here. And when they went through all of these different fields of knowledge and things to tell, the thing that was the easiest to declassify was the physics. Most of that physics was pre-war. Um, a lot of it is way pre-war. Some of it is, you know, 1905, right? Um, and uh, that's the easy stuff to talk about because it's it's already out there. The physics is the part that you can figure out on your own with a blackboard once you know a few important values or make a few key measurements, right? Um, uh, Werner Heisenberg, when he learns about the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, uh, him and the other German scientists were in Farm Hall in England, they, uh, they figure out more or less how it worked. Uh, in the course of a day after the bomb went off, just from some news reports that gave them a sense of the order of magnitude and what material was used inside it and things like that. So that's the kind of information that is actually not as um, proprietary or important to the manufacture of the physical weapon either. The theoretical processes are not as important. What's important to making an actual bomb? You need to know how to enrich uranium. You need to know how to do it at scale. You need to know how to uh, make a nuclear reactor, an industrial-sized nuclear reactor, how to deal with reactor poisons, how to deal with reactor. You know, these are all complicated things, which do involve some physics, to be sure. Physics is at the heart of these processes. But a lot of the realization of this physics into an actual technology is chemistry, metallurgy, engineering, so on and so on. That's the stuff that they didn't want to release anything of because that's the practical new knowledge they had developed during the Manhattan Project. And so the the 
there's two ironies here. One is that we tend, when we talk about nuclear weapons production, to talk about physics. This is how we start. We talk about a uranium atom and how it splits and how much energy is released and neutrons. And that's all legitimate. Physics is at the core of the process of the nuclear explosion. But um, it, it turns out that that stuff is is not as important for actually making a bomb as a lot of other fields that we tend to ignore uh, when we talk about these things. The other thing is that the cumulative effect of only being able to declassify physics means that the story of the Manhattan Project that gets told in the 1940s is a story of physicists doing physics. It starts literally in the Smythe Report, which is the book they put out right after Nagasaki, with E equals MC squared, right? And that's a very physics-centric version. There's almost no chemists, almost no metallurgists, almost no engineering. It looks like this very physics story. That's an artifact of the classification, as well as the fact that a lot of that information was written by physicists. And they did see that as being the central way to tell the story, because that was the story that they ended. Okay, well, let's move on from the immediate post-war period, because the U.S. didn't remain the only atomic or nuclear power for very long. I mean, despite this um, Atomic Security Act and uh, Atomic Energy Act in, in 1946, uh, the Soviet Union tested its first device only three years later. The U.K. in, I think, 1952, France, 1960, China, 1964. You know, by this point, the cat was definitely out of the bag. The horse had bolted you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. How did that affect the U.S. attitude towards nuclear secrecy? The testing of the Soviet bomb, and also the British as well, it did cause some rethinking of the secrecy, though it didn't lead to a rejection of secrecy. What emerged in this period is what I call the sort of Cold War regime of secrecy, which is a somewhat of a different way of thinking about both the goals of secrecy and the means of them in the United States. And so we think of the Cold War in the United States, and especially secrecy and spies, as being McCarthyism and the Oppenheimer affair and you know, very oppressive towards scientists. And in many ways, it was. This is totally a fair characterization. Um, scientists who had ties with political groups that were unfavorable could have their visas denied. They wouldn't be allowed to leave the country. Their passports seized. Um, they could be put on blacklists where they couldn't get jobs. I mean, this is this is pretty intense. Uh, at the same time, this period is when the United States was declassifying more technical information about nuclear uh, technology than ever before. And this was because of the uh, part of the Atoms for Peace program. This is Eisenhower's dream of making nuclear technology something more than just weapons. And so wanting to encourage private industry, uh, the development of civilian nuclear reactors, nuclear medicine, all sorts of things like that. And that led to this just flurry of declassification. Um, and it's kind of amazing that these things are going on at the same time and that the attitude is essentially... There are some things that are so secret still, even though a few other countries know them, fine. You, you, you don't want to give them confirmation about anything they know, and you don't want it to spread further, right? So Soviet Union knows how to make an atomic bomb. Doesn't mean you can make that not secret anymore because it's not just the Soviet Union in the world. There's China, you know, Yugoslavia. There's all sorts of other parties out there that they're worried about, um, some of which become nuclear and some of which don't. On the other hand, if releasing that information would be a boon to nuclear industry, 
then maybe you take it out of the really dangerous category and you put it into a new category, which is not only so good, but so good that everybody should have it over the entire world. It's one or the other. It's either you can be executed for giving away the information or the information is going to be deposited in every major library in the world the next day, that sort of thing. And that's a really unstable (laughs) sort of situation, right? And it leads to a lot of problems, especially by the 1970s. Uh, It turns out they release things that they wish they didn't release. And there's people who are doing research in the nuclear industry that is starting to touch on areas that they're very sensitive. Things like this occur in the 60s and 70s, but that's the sort of 50s attitude towards it. So this is sort of how it morphs. And if you want to say that's a little incoherent, I'm with you. It is a little incoherent. It doesn't. (laughs) make a lot of sense. It works in the early 50s, in part because the US is still basically, um, even though the the Soviets have uh, a nuclear weapon, they aren't publishing on anything like this. So Mm. the US essentially has a monopoly at this point still on nuclear technology and information in the non-Soviet world. By the 60s and 70s, that isn't the case. Lots of other countries are working on these things and are already accomplished. And, And so that that shows that this doesn't really, it's not a great strategy. (laughs) I want to pick up something from that last question. You know, the US was the first to develop atomic and nuclear weapons, um, and the first to try to keep them secret. But other nations have done it and continue to do it since. You know, why did you decide to focus on America in your book, apart from the trivial reason that you are American and records are written in English and things like that? Yeah, I mean, you could do this for some other countries. Well, I focus on America for a couple of reasons. One is it's the origin story. And for many of these countries, the template, the the American way of doing it um, became a model for other nations, sometimes very explicitly. Uh, Soviet Union famously, aside from using espionage information, but patterned their actual, their version of the Manhattan Project on the American Manhattan Project. They built the same duplicate kinds of facilities and things like this. So there is something to looking at the sort of origin of it, the holotype. Um, The other reason, aside from the fact that I speak English and have, it's easy for me to access American sources, is that there are American sources. So it's very hard to work on the nuclear histories of other nations. It's not impossible. And there's some very good uh, uh, nuclear histories out there. Um, But the United States, for all of its secrecy, is still the most transparent of the nuclear weapons states. Um, You can go to the archives and find lots of information. And that's essentially what the book is, is me going to a lot of archives and and finding, you know, thousands and thousands of documents showing these policy changes and showing, you know, the effects of them and things like that. It's very hard to do that for some countries. For some countries, it's essentially impossible. You have to rely on either the the some small number of documents that the state has released or something like that, um, or you have to rely on sort of insider accounts, which can be incomplete and somewhat biased, or you just have to rely on a sort of official versions of the story. Um, and then, of course, there's some states like Israel that don't acknowledge they have nuclear weapons, right? And it doesn't mean you can't write on these things, but it's a lot harder. So uh, the United States is ironically one of the easiest to document cases. And uh, so that makes it the sort of thing that you can imagine writing something that's trying to be in some way a more comprehensive history of these things. Um, But uh, I hope that others write other stories about the other countries and other versions of this as well. I will also say that the thing for me that makes the American case really interesting 
it's not to say that like the Soviet or the Chinese case wouldn't be interesting about writing about their secrecy. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But in the United States, there's always this tension between this desire to have transparency and openness and this desire to use secrecy for national security. Uh, this arises in the 20th century, this sort of tension. Uh, you know, the United States has has many flaws in realizing its enlightenment values and its goals of open government and freedom and all these kinds of things. It, it, it's never been uh, uh, perfectly realized, any of these ideas, but the ideas are there and they're enshrined in very high levels of law, like the Constitution. And what that means is that they have a real legal and sort of practical force in the United States. So you can have situations that are very hard to imagine in many of these other states. So for example, one of my favorite cases that comes up towards the end of the book is a journalist who in 1979 decides that he's going to publish how to uh, how a hydrogen bomb works. And he, he sort of figures this out from open source information and from talking to people who have some knowledge. And he ends up putting this together and through complicated circumstances, which the book goes into in detail, um, uh, the government tries to censor him and basically says, you're not allowed to publish. This is one of the top secrets. This is this would endanger lots of people. And uh, they he takes them. They take him to court and he essentially wins and he wins on basically First Amendment grounds. And like, that's the kind of thing that you just, that's not going to happen in the Soviet Union. That's not going to happen in the People's Republic of China or North Korea. I'm not sure that would happen in France, right? Um, where somebody is taking something that the government is saying, and, 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 and not just the government, we're talking about like the Secretary of Defense, we're talking about the top level government officials are saying, this is a, a government secret. And if it's out there, then like millions of people will be at risk. And the courts say, I don't know. Your case is kind of weak. I think the First Amendment, that this this right to the press, I think it 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 triumphs over this. That's the kind of tension that you find all the time in the United States, and it makes it um, a very interesting story. It's not a story of they impose secrecy and some people grumbled. It's a story of like them trying to control things like the press and the scientists and universities, and and not really ever being uh, having the absolute upper hand. Alex Wallerstein, thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed being here. And you can read more about Wallerstein's book, Restricted Data, on the Physics World website. Just look for the review under the headline, Keeping Nuclear Secrets. Double Anonymous Peer Review is a new way for the physics community to evaluate the quality of new research papers. It's been recently adopted by the Institute of Physics Publishing which brings you Physics World, and they've adopted it to address the significant gender, racial, and geographical underrepresentation in the scholarly publishing process. I'm joined down the line by Kim Eggleton, who is Research Integrity and Inclusion Manager at IOP Publishing, and we're going to talk about double anonymous peer review. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thank you for the invitation. So, Kim, can you give our listeners an idea of how DA peer review works? Double anonymous peer review is actually really old. It's as old as peer review. Um, it's been used in the social sciences predominantly for a long time. But the STEM subject, so you know, we, we would consider physics a, a pretty core part of STEM, have always used what we call single anonymous peer review or sometimes known as single blind. And what that means is that the identity of the 
author is known to the reviewer. So when the reviewer is assessing the work and making a comment about whether they think it should be published in a journal or not, they're sometimes not only commenting on the work, but they're also potentially commenting on the person that's done the work or you know the, the group of authors. So the concept of double anonymous is that, that the reviewer um, doesn't know that that information about who the authors are. So they really are just assessing the work, the science, but they have no idea who wrote it. It could be, you know, the most famous scientist in the world. It could be, you know, a very early career researcher who's writing their first paper. The reviewer has no idea. And so the concept of double anonymous is really to try and help the reviewers be as objective as possible um, and not be influenced in any way by who's actually completed the work, but more focusing on the work itself. So that's what we say when we hope it's going to address some of the underrepresentation in the scholarly publishing process. We've looked at our data and there's an increasing number of papers published on this now as other publishers are looking at their data as well. And we know that um, if you're, for example, from America or Europe, you have a, a particular sort of chance of being accepted. Whereas if you're potentially from India or Africa, you have a much lower chance of being accepted. And what we don't know is whether that's because of the quality of your science or because there might be some bias in the process. And what appears to be coming out of this research is that there is bias when we compare articles that are going through, you know, both the single anonymous and the double anonymous process at the same time, there is a better result under the double anonymous method. So that's the reason that we feel double anonymous would be of real benefit to the physics community, because we know there's underrepresentation in physics. We know that women, for example, and people who identify as non-binary aren't well represented enough in our community. There are also geographical and ethnicity um, issues of underrepresentation in physics and science more broadly. So we really hope that by implementing double anonymous peer review on our journals, we're doing a small bit to help the physics community and the wider science community become more diverse and more inclusive. So Kim, I think um, IOP Publishing started implementing a double anonymous peer review about a year ago. What, what have mm -hmm. the main challenges been in implementing it? Well, in some ways, it's been really straightforward. Um, we have all our journals on the same submission system, which is provided by a third party called Clarivate, um, and they facilitate double anonymous peer review. They already have journals, um, again, like I said, in the social sciences that are using this method. So it was quite a straightforward technical change. Um, I say straightforward, there's work involved, but it's not, it's not too complex. I think the main challenge for me anyway has been kind of winning hearts and minds. Double Anonymous is new to physics. It's not new to publishing. Um, and some disciplines, like I say, have been using it for, for decades. But for science and for physics, it, it's a new thing. Um, and there's been some work involved in just helping people understand why are we doing this? What are the benefits? Um, and allaying some of the concerns that they might have about, well, does, you know, does this mean that reviewers are potentially less likely to want to review for the journal? Um, might you know might people not want to submit to the journal because it's using this method and we've been able to reassure people because we've been testing double anonymous for a number of years there's five of our journals now that have offered double anonymous as an option for authors so authors have been able to say at the beginning of that submission process I want to go down the single anonymous route or I want to go down the double anonymous route. So we can compare the data um, and we've been able to reassure anyone with those kind of concerns that 
actually submission numbers are not affected in any way and neither is the kind of reviewer behavior. Um, There's no less chance of a reviewer accepting an invitation to review. And actually there's some really promising statistics coming out of our data as well. So authors, we survey our authors at the end of the submission process, whether they've been accepted or not. And our authors consistently are rating the double anonymous method as not only more fair, um, but the reviews that they're receiving, they're saying that they're more clear, they're more thorough, um, and they're also more timely. So we think there's there's additional benefits, um, whether their perception or reality is up for debate, but it certainly seems like from our data that um, authors and reviewers are, are, are pretty fond of this method and it's working really well. So, um, yeah, it's been nice to be able to reassure people with evidence. That's what scientists like, right? They want to see the numbers. Um, so it's been great that we've had that in our in our back pocket. And, and and so it sounds like like things have been positive. Is everybody happy with this? I mean, I, I know that in physics and and other scientific disciplines, um, reputation means a lot. Um, you know, when we when we want to comment um, on a paper that we're writing a news story about, we will go to um, you know a physicist that has a a, a very strong reputation and I, I think that that's also the case when you know when we're choosing members of our editorial board you know how how does you know sort of double anonymous uh peer review jive with this this idea of reputation which i think is you know it is very important in in the scientific community for for very good reasons it is absolutely and we know that people's scientific careers are made or potentially broken based on what and where they publish um so this is not you know this is not a decision that we took lightly and you're right it's not it's not been popular with everybody, um, but the, the vast, vast majority have been really supportive. Um, I think when you talk about that reputation, the some of the quotes and people that we've worked with who've opted for Double Anonymous, some of those people have been, you know, really reputable, high profile scientists. And it's great to see that they've been embracing that Double Anonymous method. And when we've asked them why that is they've said well it's because I want my work to stand on its own merit you know I don't want anyone to give me an easy pass because I you know I'm well known or they think there might be some repercussions you know um they they're proud of their work and they want it to be judged on its merits um and that that was really reassuring for us to hear um that it's not just something that's going to benefit you know people with no reputation um it's important to people with a reputation as well and of course when the work's published the names are all over it so when it actually reaches that sort of accept and it becomes public then everyone can see who's done the work and and judge it accordingly but for us we just felt that it was really important that 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 procedure that we all go through or all articles go through to get to publication really needs to be as objective as possible um, but also as transparent as possible and that's a new thing we're trying to do in um, in parallel with double anonymous peer review is something that we're calling transparent peer review which might sound like they contradict each other but actually they work beautifully together so double anonymous peer review keeps everybody's identity kind of hidden under while the paper is under consideration but once the paper reaches acceptance and it's um, published what we're encouraging our authors and our reviewers to do is to put their names on the work so that means the reviewers names also revealed and we're publishing the reviews of the paper as well 
So this is only actually live on a, on a handful of our journals at the moment, but we're hoping to roll it out to more journals this and next year. Um, but this gives the readers also a glimpse into how peer review works and what process has that paper been through? Who's it been validated by? How's it been you know, changed and edited as it's gone through that process to become that final article that they're relying on? And that's something that I think is really valuable and really interesting for the physics community to have this combination of approaches that gives us maximum objectivity in, in, the, in the decision-making process, but then maximum transparency for readers. So, Kim, I, I think you've been a bit modest about, uh, you, you know, talking about some of the people who have who have supported um, Double Anonymous at uh, for IOP Publishing. There's actually a Nobel Prize winner, um, Kostya Novoselov, who uh, shared the Nobel Prize for his discovery of graphene. And he um, has published uh, as an author um, a Double Anonymous paper with uh, with IOP publishing. So um uh, you, you know that's uh, that's definitely something to shout about, isn't it? It is. That's very very cool. And I must admit when my colleague um wrote to me and let me know that we'd had a submission from a Nobel Prize winning author and under an anonymous system, I was just thrilled because again it just gives it that credibility that it it's not just um people who have something to gain as it were you know those people with no reputation it's it's people with an amazing reputation as well who really believe in the system and that work should stand on its own merit and I think we all have this vision of science as meritocratic and completely fair but in reality you know science is done by humans and we all have our biases and our um, prejudices whether we know it or not you know we're, we're completely products of our environment and our upbringing we you know we all have unconscious bias as well as as well as conscious bias and the evidence suggests that that's crept into the decision making process um around scientific publishing and we just want to try and make sure that we eradicate that but to have to have the support of of a nobel prize winner is pretty phenomenal yeah that was a really good day when i found out about that yeah it's amazing isn't it definitely mm-hmm. yes and I, I suppose it's onwards and upwards so is absolutely is- so, Kim, is Double Anonymous available on all IOPP journals at the moment? Very nearly. So we agreed last year, it was about this time last year, I think it was August, September, um, that we would move all our journals over to the Double Anonymous method as default. Um, but we didn't want to move them all at once. That's a bit of a shock to the community. And it's also a huge amount of work for us in the back office. Um, so what we've done is we've moved groups of journals over each month. We've done five or six journals a month, tried to group them together. So the subject communities, you know, those little mini disciplines are kind of all moving together. Um, So we plan to have all our journals moved over by the end of November. The exceptions are those journals of ours which are owned um, by some partners. So, for example, the AAS um, run their own journals and we just host them on our publishing platform. The decision is the partners then to uh, to decide whether they want to embrace that double anonymous method or not. Some of our partners have already chosen to opt in and we're actually converting some of our partner titles at the moment. But I couldn't say it it's all of our titles, but that it's it's certainly all of those that are owned by IOPP. Wow, that sounds like a, quite an undertaking in, in just over a year. Um, there's more information about Double Anonymous Peer Review on the Institute of Physics Publishing website. There's an FAQ there, and uh, you'll also find a statement from IOP Publishing that I think went out uh, about a year ago outlining the program. Thanks for being on the podcast, Kim. Thanks for the invitation. 
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Kim Eggleton, Alex Wellerstein, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks, as always, to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. This month, host Andrew Glester hears from scientists and software engineers at the vanguard of developing free and open-source software for physics research. Physics World.